Greetings again, everyone. I suppose that the crash that occurred last week has been on all of our minds. My notes have at the very top of them to mention the MD-80 or the DC-9 stretched new version from McDonnell Douglas that went into Detroit because I wanted to turn to and read a segment out of Loop 13 involving why such accidents occur. While you're turning to that, let me tell you that I am a very close friend of a good neighbor of mine who prides himself on being logical. And one time we had a very interesting discussion when we were driving back from Dallas after I'd been over there with him. It was quite late in the evening and he was quite concerned because although he is a nominal Christian as opposed to being a Muslim or a Jew or perhaps a Shintoist or Buddhist, he is by no means a religious man, does not go to church, and like a lot of people probably thinks he has his own private deal with the Lord. You know, I mean, he, he might darken the door of a church time or two a year if his wife drags him off down there, but by and large you're not going to find him in church. And because he says that a lot of things about Christianity aren't logical to him. So we started talking about things involving aging and the ultimate process of dying. You know, dying is the problem. Being dead doesn't worry me a bit. It's how you get there that is the problem. But he was concerned about his relatives who had died and elderly people, his grandparents and his mother and so on. And I began to explain a little bit to him from the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. And the more I talked about the second resurrection to a time of judgment where people of China and India and Japan and all of the tens and hundreds of millions of people who have lived and died, who have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ, who were just sort of out there, but they're going to have an opportunity during a conscious lifetime, and there is an indication that lifetime may actually be, according to God's love and mercy, 100 years in length. Which, if that is so, and it appears that it is in the 65th chapter of Isaiah, that the great period of judgment, which is not a sentencing, remember, a great deal of difference between a sentence, sentencing and a judgment, to take place for 100 years is a lot more time than you and I have been given. None of us are going to have 100 years to experience life and make our choices and decisions and finally perhaps to receive the call of God and become converted and inherit eternal life. In the 13th chapter of Luke is a portion of the Bible that deals with why things happen, such as Ralph was mentioning to us and what we all saw as we were appalled watching our television sets innumerable times during the last week. We had just come in from Chicago, and we had been up in that area, and Bronson James had been there, and he's from Detroit. And we had been in the western part of Chicago, and I flew back with Benny and our King Air. Well, he was going to take a flight from Chicago to Detroit, and I would imagine would have been landing somewhere about the same time that that accident occurred. So, of course, not knowing initially whether the aircraft was landing or taking off or just what it was, I no sooner walked into my living room, it was about 9.15, 9.30 at night after arriving at about 8.30, quarter to 9 out of the airport after dark uh, that Saturday evening, than we learned about this terrible crash that took so many lives up in Detroit. I couldn't sleep very well that night. I had a terrible dream about an airline's crash or a crash of an aircraft in which I was flying, as you can well imagine, because I'm sitting there watching all of this stuff as it's basically breaking, and they had people right on the source, uh, right on the uh, spot when it happened, and uh, the local television people up there were hooked into CNN, and they, of course, got it hours before the major networks did. So I'm seeing it, realizing that at about the time our wheels were touching down at Tyler, an airplane was going in up there with these terrified passengers. Well, the first person on the scene, and I will dispense with the blood and gore very quickly, I assure you, was going over the overpass, stopped briefly, and saw a portion of the aircraft that had come to rest on top of the overpass. Flames were coming up both sides, and he heard a lot of screaming down there. Couldn't stand it, jumped back in his car, and drove home. He didn't want to stay around, he just couldn't stand being there. Now, my question as we read these scriptures is why those people and why that way? There can be nothing worse the way I feel about it than burning to death. I, I cannot imagine any worse way to die. Chapter 13 of the book of Luke, verse 1, There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, 
And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. Now, there are Christian ministers who don't believe Christ. I'm going to point that, point that out in a moment. I tell you, no. In other words, whether they were good, bad, or indifferent, worse sinners than other sinners, the worst sinners around, or sinners at all, had nothing to do with Pilate assassinating those people, or Pilate's army, of course. But I tell you, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. The word likewise is a little confusing. You would be tempted to put this implication on it. You're all going to die by somebody brutally hacking on you with a sword. That isn't what is implied by this word at all. It means you also are going to die. It doesn't say in what method, but you are going to die. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell. Ancient brick or mortar gave way. People are sitting in the shade as they were wont to do during that time, chatting away. And uh, all of a sudden, a lot of stones and brick and mortar and tile came down and killed them all. Eighteen of them. Quite a tragedy during that time. And well known. Something he could refer to and all of his audience would immediately know what he's talking about. Do you think they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. All Christ was saying here is that we are all susceptible to time and chance and circumstance and that if we are not repentant and do not have God's Holy Spirit, then our lives don't make any difference and our deaths don't make any difference. Our lives don't count for anything. And our death and the manner of our death doesn't count for anything. It's not important. It's not something that changes the course of society or civilization or the nation and indeed sometimes even a very small local community. We're here, and we're gone, and that's the end of it. He is not saying here that if you do not repent, you're going to die with a cascade of stones on your head, or you're going to die with somebody hacking on you with a sword. He is merely saying that you're out there taking your chances, and that if you are not a part of God's kingdom, even before you are resurrected and inducted into that kingdom, then very likely your death will mean absolutely nothing. I want to go to the fifth chapter of the book of John, where Jesus, in re response to some of the antagonistic commentary of the Pharisees, made a statement, a very important one we tend to pass over, in which he mentioned two categories of people and the coming resurrection from the dead. We see that in verse 16, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to slay him because he had healed someone on the Sabbath day. And when he said, My father works hitherto, and I work, in verse 17 of John 5, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he had not only broken the Sabbath, that's the way they looked at it. Some people have actually been tempted to say he really broke the Sabbath, and have tried to use this as an argument to say, therefore we can also do the same thing. But said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these things doeth the Son also, or likewise. Skipping on down to verse 24, Verily I say unto you, He that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed, present tense, is passed from death unto life. Now, as John wrote in 1 John, the fifth chapter, he that hath the Son hath life. Jesus made a very strange statement in John, I should say, in Matthew, the tenth chapter, when he said, I won't turn to it, fear not man who after he has killed the Soma cannot kill the Suke. There's nothing further that man can do to you, meaning after he has destroyed your physical body, by sword or any other method, cannot kill what is called in the Greek language the life, which is inappropriately translated in that text, the soul. But fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul, which means soma and suke, or your being in your physical metabolic organism, this temporal, transitory life that is sustained by air, water, food, and so on, by the circulatory system of our body, and God is able to destroy that, as well as what is called the life. 
Now, the Bible is very clear that there is a spirit in man. In one sense of the word, it was unnecessary for decades for God's church to try to beat the Protestants over the head and to attack the Catholics and to turn a lot of people off and get them angry on just shouting from the pulpit that the concept of the immortality of the soul is pagan to the core and so on and getting people angry before you ever even get a yes answer out of them because it's really a matter of semantics. There is no immortal soul, which is the innermost you, which contains all of your feelings and your personality and your memory and your hopes, dreams, and desires and everything that makes you you and you as a special person that lives on after you die. The concept that you are just like my jacket here and that you are folded up and tossed away into a corner, but that your soul lives on is a pagan concept. It began way back in ancient Babylon. It was something that was held by Zoroaster. It was something that was held by the Druids of ancient England and all of the priesthood that were supposed to be pagan in pre-Christian England before Augustine ever began to try to convert some of those people. So the concept that there is something spiritual that lives on even though your body is destroyed by fire, that lives on no matter how your physical body is destroyed and no matter how it might perish, happens to be a very solid biblical concept. Solomon wrote, there is a spirit in man. And the Apostle Paul wrote, my spirit witnesseth not with your spirit, etc. And it also says in the book of Romans, the eighth chapter, that we have a spirit and that there is a spirit that Almighty God is communicating with. You stop to think about the fact that Almighty God has given us analogies in the human reproduction uh, system, the method by which all mammals, and for that matter plants, as well as all animals and all creatures, are propagated, that the male does not simply cohabit with the female who is completely lifeless. The male and the female have to come together and there is a living cell which actually unites with a living cell. Now, spirit and flesh have nothing in common whatsoever. A spirit being can walk right through the floor, through the concrete, through the walls, through a solid stone. It does not matter because they do not live. They do not exist in a dimension that has to do with matter. And everything we can come to see with our eyes and know about in the material universe is matter. All of this was once just so much ooze, and before that it was living creatures. Many of these little blurbs here that you see, the little irregularities, were clams. And they were tossed up in a big turgid kind of a wave one time down here in the hill country, probably during the Noasian Deluge, maybe billions of years ago, in some other submergence or emergence of the land masses of this earth. And those little living bodies were buried in muds and oozes that gradually, as the water was squeezed out and then tons of debris and all sorts of muds were added to the top of it, they were preserved. Those little clams came from other clams. And whether you're dealing with insects or great elephants or human beings, it takes life to reproduce life in, this physical, in, in the physical sphere. How then is God going to beget a human being by uniting spirit with flesh. It isn't logical. And in fact, the Bible says that God does not do that, but that Almighty God actually places a portion of His Spirit, which is revealed as coming from the Father, masculine, and all of us, whether male or female, as the human body, therefore, are viewed in that sense as the feminine gender because God begets us as his children. It's merely an analogy to help us understand. It is not, uh, we cannot pretend to understand the process perfectly at all. But Almighty God does not send his Holy Spirit into our bone or into our tissue, into our elbow or our kneecap or even the cranium or even into a muscle of the body such as our heart. There is some essence of some sort. Perhaps it has been photographed with pictures of kinetic energy. Perhaps the concept of ESP, of why blind people can walk in the dark and suddenly stop dead without even knowing that there is a deep precipice or a yawning chasm or a door or something that would injure them directly in front of them, that they could sense it without ever seeing it. Uh, perhaps why a twin sits straight upright and cries out in bed when the twin dies a thousand miles away, or a mother screams out suddenly when the child was killed during the war in World War II, which has happened and been documented. 
and which leads many people to believe in all sorts of esoteric mysteries and spiritism and even witchcraft and demonism because they do not understand that there is in fact a wavelength apparently with which we human beings are imbued or endowed that we utilize in prayer and that we utilize in worship that is the very depth of the innermost psyche or being that we can become conscious of which is spiritual in nature and which coupled with the frontal lobes of the human brain gives us what we call our humanitarianism gives us the capacity for love and for what Ralph was just talking about because that defies logic it defies human nature people with their legs on fire think of their legs and themselves they don't think of those passengers back there so suddenly there is something that will cause people to rise above normal animal physical human instincts and act in a way that we speak of as humanitarian which really is not perhaps human at all but is a part of that spirit that Almighty God gives us with which his Holy Spirit can unite so when a father and mother come together in love and a child is begotten a living sperm cell of the father unites with living with a living egg of the mother and a new creature a human being is on the way by the same token Almighty God with a living spirit puts a part of his living spirit in a living spiritual essence that is united with and is inseparable from the brain but when the brain dies that spirit is utterly unconscious oblivious and has no separate being no separate essence no separate consciousness or intelligence of itself it is only when it is united with the brain that there is any intelligence or consciousness now some people will say oh that soul sleeping but actually Solomon asked the question in that famous text about the silver cord be broken and so on when he said about the spirit of the animal that goes back to the ground and who knoweth whether is what he is really asking the spirit of the man goeth back to God who gave it he didn't know I don't know either does it stay at the body and what happens when somebody is completely disintegrated uh, by fire or just completely vaporized by a nuclear explosion as occurred in Hiroshima and Nagasaki Almighty God will work that out of course and we see Paul answering the question with what body do they come how can God mechanically affect the resurrection of the dead he asks and answers that question in 1st Corinthians 15 so he said we are passed from death unto life we need to think more often perhaps of that tender delicate precious little life inside of us that is Christ-like those moments when we have a kind of a spiritual high maybe at the Feast of Tabernacles maybe at the climax of a sermon maybe at a particular time in prayer maybe when we just visited a loved one in the hospital when we in our peaks and valleys of spiritual experience realize that that suddenly we're a little closer to God than we were last week but we need to realize in the same way that a mother will so tenderly and so carefully care for a precious child that we are guarding and tenderly grooming and caring for and hoping to see grow and develop a very precious life which is already here resident within our brain which the Bible speaks of as our heart it is already here it says here he is passed from death unto life there were Christians back during those days who had the concept deeply within them that it doesn't matter what man does to my body he cannot take from me my life and walked out to meet the beasts in the arena or walked to the stake or walked uh, straight forward to the armies that were coming to kill them with a song on their lips and they did not have the natural human instinct of self-preservation which says look out everybody and tramples under people to death in a sports arena in Central America which is human nature in action as ugly as it possibly can be because human nature unbridled says I'm going to protect myself preserve myself preserve this physical life and of that attitude martyrs are not born he went on to say in verse 25 verily I say unto you the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God the reason he said now is is because during his lifetime there were many resurrections the Bible does not specify how many people who had died within maybe 10 20 30 50 years prior to the time of the crucifixion of Christ 
when that great earthquake unearthed stone sarcophagi all over the hillsides of Jerusalem and the lids slid off and bodies raised up and looked around and took the garments off and walked into that city to their loved ones who were astounded to find that old Uncle Henry was alive again. We tend to pass over that very quickly, but that is very documented in the Bible that actually people were resurrected from their tombs by the moment of the death and the rending of the veil in twain in the Holy of Holies when Jesus Christ died, as well as the fact that Jesus raised Lazarus and later on Peter raised Dorcas and the Apostle Paul raised the young man who fell out of the balcony. But by and large, he's talking about the time in the future. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. And through Jesus Christ, we may have life within ourselves. It is already our possession. It is not something that we continually, through some preacher who tries to keep us under his control through the concept of fear, must always remain in doubt. I lived with that doubt for more than two decades. I would go out of sermons time after time after time feeling like there is no way I will ever get into God's kingdom. I can never measure up to the righteousness of that man up there who just spoke to me. And they made you feel that way. I don't think deliberately. I don't think that was something that was in the back of their minds. But it was because the theology of the organization was such that instead of giving people the hope and the encouragement and the absolute conviction and the assurance that they had eternal life. It was a fait accompli. It was a past act. And it's now something they need to preserve and protect and nurture and grow and develop just the way you will nurture and protect a young baby. It was always, will you be able to make it? Will you be there? Uh, probably not. You know, and you would always think that maybe I won't make it by the time you heard sermons of that nature. As the father has life self-inherent within himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. Now, as a little fetus, a spiritual fetus, the mother is the church. And a loving mother will never have an abortion. I'm not going to launch into that subject, but I can tell you from many biblical points of view, abortion is murder. And there's just no doubt about it at all. There are too many places in the Bible where Almighty God knew people, Jeremiah, David, John the Baptist, and what about Jesus Christ? When was Christ the Son of God? Better way to say it is, when wasn't He the Son of God? At that very precise instant, I will guarantee you, of conception, that life that was God life that became human life was God in the flesh. There wasn't a time when that could have been an abortion to have Mary just you know, be given uh, an alternative lifestyle or mother's choice, the way they pray, prayed around about it in our obscene Supreme Court that has actually allowed people to do that today. As the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. And he that hath Christ hath life, it says very clearly, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all, stress the word all, that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Did you witness in some of the documentaries the killing and then the beating of Mussolini? Did you witness the burnt, charred bodies that they dug out of the chancellery garden behind the Führer bunker in 1945? I did, many times. So I'm just saying all, Hitler, Mussolini, Apple of the Hun, Every great arch-criminal, despot, murderer that has ever lived is going to hear the voice of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and shall come forth. They that have done good, and they are what? Are they even one-tenth of one percent of the entire population of mankind? I don't know that it really represents that big of a group. If you look all the way back through history and you study all of the bygone races of people and the, the great uh, empires of the past, they that have done good under the resurrection of life, which we will very quickly deal with in a few moments, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. But the King James is in error. That word should not be damnation, meaning final, ultimate condemnation. It is judgment. Judgment. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people have the concept 
that judgment and sentencing are the same thing. Because the old traditional Protestant picture is that here is a great exalted being with a long beard and flowing white hair, sort of translucent with a glow on his face, with a big gavel in his hand. And I've seen, you know, Adventists are really, they love to have real flowery, lovely pictures with clouds everywhere and little angels flitting about and people standing about in holy garb with very sanctimonious looks on their face on the covers that are booklets. So as little children, a lot of you were probably reared to believe in the scene of this great being up there, and I don't know that you thought about it as a trap door with a lever and kind of, you know, sulfuric fumes and flames coming up and a little kind of a scream as you heard the guy disappear or not. But it's sort of separating the sheep and the goats, and they're all lined up. It doesn't really occur to you that you couldn't do that even in the city of Tyler in less than two weeks, but, but they're all there, you know, all of mankind. And in a few hours, they all come up, and pretty soon there you are, and the minister made you think about the time when you're going to stand there, and there you are, little Gloria, whatever your name is. And then the angels trot out these books, and he says, oh, no. Did you do that? You know, and he goes, oh, no. And the angels are going like this. And, you know, but they can portray this to you, and there's the record and everything you've done, and then whether or not the lever is pulled for you to shoot up to heaven or whether or not you go down to hell. In the outdoor play that I saw called Jesus Christ Superstar, they actually tried to portray with a little... A little elevator about this big around in the middle of the stage, Judas Iscariot going to hell at the very moment that he kissed the Lord and they were carting him off the stage to Golgotha. And he's singing this song and slowly disappearing with these red lights playing on him and then screaming as he disappears, you know. And it was really very dramatic, but it wasn't really true to the text exactly because it actually said that he went out and hung himself. And then later on, of course, the body fell and I won't go into all the details. But... It says it is the resurrection to judgment. Now, we're going to take a look at that right quickly. Let's go to the 20th chapter of the book of Matthew. Of uh, ex- Listen to me saying Matthew, Exodus, and everything else. Revelation, the 20th chapter, please. And we will begin reading in verse 4. John projected forward into the time of the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, and now beginning, of course, the time of the establishment of God's government on the earth, says, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. And so here are the saints with Jesus Christ in control, in position of rulership on the earth. And judgment, remember that was a resurrection to judgment, and judgment is not a sentencing. The sentencing is the final act, the final decision that the judge makes over the period of judgment. And judgment, it says in 1 Peter, the third chapter, must begin today at the house of the eternal. And if it begins at the church, then where will the ungodly and the sinners appear? Now, how are you being judged? Every one of us is being judged every single day, every hour of every day, based upon what is written in this book. We're being judged by what is called books. The Greek word is merely biblos. There's nothing holy about the word Bible. The word Bible is a Greek transliteration from books, biblos. But when you put sacred biblos or sacred scriptures or holy Bible, then it means the holy books of God, of which there are many, many, many books. Now, we are being judged out of those books because God says, I change not. Thy word is truth. Almighty God shows that we are judged by the things written in this living word, and it is a living witness, not a dead witness. Judgment was given unto them. Christ has now shared judgment, and you and I are training and qualifying to actually share with him in the process of determining what shall be the ultimate fate of human beings perhaps we have known, some of whom we may know intimately and others of whom we may have only known through reputation. I saw the souls. Again, Greek is suke. And you can look at the fact that in Revelation 16:3 that very same word is used where it says, every living soul died in the sea. The Greek word suke is utilized in Revelation 16:3 in the following passage, every living soul died. The exact transliteration from the Hebrew 
which you can read in the appendices of the Companion Bible that will save me a lot of time, and also in the article on the immortality of the soul, which details every one of those, proves beyond the remotest shadow of the doubt that there is no connection whatsoever between the Greek word suke and a concept of something which is extraterrestrial or extraphysical or immortal. This is merely the lives of them that were beheaded. So he is seeing figuratively in the same way that God said after Cain slew Abel, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. It is like saying almost poetically, his life cries out for vengeance. Well, blood doesn't have a mouth and blood doesn't talk and blood didn't cry from the ground. So it's a metaphor. And this is a metaphor as well. I saw the lives, or the beings, or the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and ruled, reigned with Christ a thousand years. All right, that is the millennial reign of Christ and his saints. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished, and that is a parenthetical statement. This, referring back to the really main subject at hand, is the first resurrection, is speaking of those who were seen as being on the thrones with Christ, obviously. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such, notice this language, the second death has no power. Oh, then there is a second death. Let me take you to Hebrews 11.35 right quickly. We will come back here a little later. Hebrews 11.35 and read about that because it is absolutely cogent to what we want to talk about today. And with regard to my friend who is a very logical person, something that I think he could understand. Speaking here of all of the catalog of the great patriarchs and the prophets and the righteous men and women, all of whom were martyrs, all of whom died, having received not the promises, verse 13 of the 11th chapter of Hebrews. He finally says, after mentioning Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, so many others like Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and all of the others, some of the women received, verse 35, their dead raised to life again. That was Mary and Martha and all of those at Lazarus' home. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, there's a better resurrection, and then there is a resurrection that is not better. We just read about those who were ruling and reigning with Christ, who obviously are those who are the dead in Christ, as we shall now prove and we shall now see, and then those who were called the rest of the dead who lived not again until the thousand years were gone, passed, oops, passed and finished. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. And that, of course, is the famous resurrection chapter. The entire subject of 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection of the dead, but it gives us also a definite chronological sequence of events and gives us a time element that is very important. I use this every single time I ever preach a funeral service. And the most recent one was when Marisa Mitchell died after a protracted struggle with cancer. And I was just thinking when Ralph was talking, at least in the sense that uh, Marisa had an opportunity to be with her family and her loved ones for quite a period of time and was not trapped in a blazing fuselage having to undergo what those poor, hapless people underwent just the other day. And we can only hope and pray that it was so quick that it wasn't long, because what bothers all of us, of course, is the concept of human suffering. Being dead doesn't bother me. Just bang, being dead, that doesn't bother me. But how you get there, sometimes that can really bother you. Well, first of all, he talks about the resurrection of Christ. And he says in verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Read Daniel 12, 1 and 2 about the great resurrection that is going to come of the just and the unjust. And, of course, the Old Testament of the Bible, there are many references to the resurrection in Solomon's writings, many in David's writings, like sheep were laid in the dust of the earth. Jeremiah writes about the resurrection of David as the king over all of Israel. And there are promises of the resurrection throughout the Old Testament, which, of course, were the only scriptures extant during this period of time. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain, and our faith, your faith, is also vain, and we're false witnesses, and so on. Verse 16, 
For if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised. If this, verse 19, if in this life only, that is, once we're dead, if all hope is lost, and we're in the tomb and there is no more hope, then we're of all men most miserable. You cannot stave off the aging process. It is going to happen to you. When you're 16 or 17, I don't care how many philosophers, sages, wise men, university professors, or lieutenant colonels in a Marine Corps would come by and tell you someday you're going to be 57 and you're going to look around and wonder where your life went. You'll say, oh, come on. I mean, you're an old fogey, and it may appear that way to you, but you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm 16, and I'm going to live for 16,000 more years. Your life just seems to stretch out interminably before you when you're young. And a little bit later on, all of a sudden, you don't know where it went. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. The Feast of Weeks was the Feast of the First Fruits. It was the spring harvest. And what they did was to have the high priest wait out into a nice, beautiful field of standing wheat or some other grain, and take one sickle and cut an armload and come back into the presence of the tabernacle and to wave it in thanksgiving before God. And that was the first of the first fruits, the first cutting of any field that was done in ceremonial ritual, which symbolized the risen Christ now being severed from the earth and being in the arms of the person who was typical of the Father and being received in heaven above. Then they had the first harvest, which was the first fruits. And they had both spring and fall harvest because they had a very long growing season and a dual harvest in Palestine. So those who are to become members of the kingdom of God and to rule with Christ for a thousand years are a part of the first fruits. Christ is become the first fruits of them that slept, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. I want you to keep your place there, and then we'll come right back to it. And just a quick little foray over to Hebrews 9:27. Very important text for us to really understand. Hebrews 9:27. And we're going to ask a couple of postulates here and see if we can't come to an agreement on the way some of these poor people have had to die. Christ said in Luke 13, 3 and 5, that these people who died in that MD-80 were not the worst sinners around Detroit or Phoenix or wherever it was they were from. It was an accident, human error, terrible tragedy. How did they die? They were cremated while they were alive. They burnt to death in their seats. Can you imagine a more horrible way to die? I cannot. I cannot imagine a more horrible way to die. Perhaps some of them died in a shock, in the crash, in the dismemberment of the aircraft. But why let your mind dwell on it? You won't sleep tonight like I didn't sleep the night I saw the news. Here God says this, verse 27. As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now you know the answer to this before I ask it. If Adam had not partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and had also simply desisted from partaking of the tree of life, would Adam still be alive today? Nobody in this room believes he would. He would have died at the end of a, end of a very long life. Because we just read, it is given to man to die once. Man was made a physical, human creature who is subject to aging, eventual senility, and gradual dysfunction of the main body systems, and death. And that's the end of the matter. But that is not the wages of sin. It says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What kind of a death? Now let's just postulate for a moment. What about those people who just died in that airplane who burned to death? The mother who burned to death shielding her baby and was not able to completely cover the little girl so that her hands and her toes and some part of her body was burnt, third degree burns, very, very bad, and has had to have skin graft operations. Horrible, horrible way to die. Many people have died in the most horrible way imaginable, and they've been people just as average and just as good as those sitting looking at me in this room, as I am, as my wife is, 
There were little grandchildren on that plane that were just as sweet to those grandparents as my little grandbaby is to me. Did they deserve that kind of a death? If you believe that, you are so wrong that you're just, you're just so out of line that it's pitiful. But I've known ministers who have actually preached to people out of the pulpit that when some loved one was taken away from them or died or suffering came along or cancer or something else, that God was punishing them. That isn't the way God punishes. When I heard that a minister had actually said and opined because a man was having his difficulties and about with alcoholism, had lost his job and was in terrible trouble, and his poor wife died, that he actually spoke out of the pulpit and said the wife died in order to punish the man. I said, if you're going to punish the man, make his legs drop off, wither his arm, you know, blamed him like they did temporarily to the Apostle Paul. Don't kill the woman to punish the man. What kind of a God is it this guy worshipped? He was supposed to be a minister of the parent church of this body and didn't understand the mercy of Jesus Christ. We worship before a loving God, a merciful God. He doesn't want to torture anybody. He doesn't want to burn anybody to death. He hates the idea of having to burn a single human being. He will go to fantastic lengths to avoid having to burn anybody, if he can possibly do it. Let's notice a question that we must ask and answer. It says, as in Adam, all die. All right, do you know how Attila, or Attila, however you like to pronounce it, the Hun died? He died peacefully, as I understand. Perhaps of old age, I don't know. Are you willing to admit and to agree with me that there have been monsters who have stood over the torture racks and have put to death countless human beings who have died peacefully of old age? You all know that that's true. You know it just sure as you're sitting there. They don't find them all, like this guy over in Israel that had been an auto worker out in Detroit. And he probably is the guy, all right. They look right into his eyes, and these people, you know, even in 40 years, you're going to remember. And witness after witness after witness said he was the butcher of that torture camp. The so-called bitch of Buchenwald, who made lampshades out of human skin. There are many of those people who disappeared. What happened to those tens of thousands of Gauleiters and Burgermeisters and uh, Untersturmführers in the SA and the SS and so on and the camp uh, commandants and so on who simply disappeared and took civilian documentation who fled to Spain and Switzerland and Argentina and Bolivia and other nations in Central and South America, many of whom ended up in the United States and died peacefully of old age, like they say some of the top people right next to Adolf Hitler did. What about Hermann Gelling, who had a cyanide capsule in a tooth, apparently, or somehow had it smuggled into him so he could cheat the hangman's noose? So we're willing to admit, aren't we, that there have been people that have been some of the worst brutes that the world has ever seen, who have died as gently and as peacefully as my grandma did, who was rocking in her chair, reading her Bible, put her glasses on the Bible, and said, I think I'll just take a little nap. And an hour or so later, they tried to get her up to go to church. And she was already cooling and was in that chair in a sitting position, dead. Nothing could be nicer than that. She was in a deep sleep and just quit breathing. But why should a brute, a torturer of children, be allowed to die like that? I'm just asking, and we all know theologically the answer. Is death any kind of death? I don't care what kind of death you're talking about. The first death. Is the first death... The punishment for sin? The answer is a resounding no, it is not. It is given to all men to die once, after this the judgment. Now, let me quickly go to a portion of the Bible. I'd like to take a lot more time with this, but I've got to hurry to Luke, the 16th chapter, and show you what the Bible very clearly says about the kind of death that Almighty God has in mind for those who are the people such as those I described, and those may be numbered with people like, I cannot judge, of course, Judas Iscariot. I don't know whether he will have an opportunity to repent. He apparently hated himself so badly that he committed suicide and was uh, perhaps not 100% guilty in the sense that he was an implement and that he was either influenced heavily by Satan the devil up to it, including the time when he betrayed Christ, but it does very specifically say that Satan entered into him. 
Now, you know, you have to cooperate to allow that to happen. You have to have these evil attitudes. But, you know, the Bible very clearly shows that people who have been demon-possessed can have those demons cast out and can become normal human beings and have that mind healed and can be normal and can therefore repent and be begotten of God in the time of the great white throne judgment. I believe that. I think they have an opportunity as well. Our God is a loving God. Our God is a merciful God. Our God is only going to destroy trash. He's going to destroy refuse. He's going to destroy rotten, wretched human beings who don't deserve to live. Now, geopolitically, there are people in this world today who need very badly to die. Just very badly. They need it. I won't detail all of who these people are, but you see them sometimes that are mouths wide open and their fists like this and screaming their hatred toward you. But let me just tell you that there are tens of thousands of them who if you would stick a couple of AK-47 in the hands of male and female, little 17-year-old girl could come running in here right now today with an AK-47 and a whole, whole bandolier of ammunition from somewhere in Iran or Lebanon or Syria or Jordan or Egypt or Kuwait or Abu Dhabi or Bahrain or Saudi Arabia and just start shooting us. And if one of these children whimpered, they'd stand over the child and kill us in the bloodiest orgy you've ever seen. You think those people deserve to die? Boy, I do. I really do. And I know that my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is coming to this earth to conquer it. Because it needs conquering. That's why there are people in this world that are such wretched human beings. Mr. Dart is studying now into the origin. And we've done it before. I had to do a big paper on the origin of a lot of the pagan religions of the world many, many years ago. And I've been just delving into all kinds of stuff, and every now and then I go off into Zoroastrianism, as I've said, and things like this, because I'm trying to detail where some of the Druidic uh, religion came from in connection with the early peoples who carried the ancient priesthood, which was the lowest of the people of Jeroboam that he set up, and was calf worship before the symbol of Taurus the bull, up among the Gothics and the Siths and the Saxons and the Picts and the Normans and the Scots, and the Brythons and so on, the people of Northwestern Europe. So, consequently, it will send me on all sorts of, of different sidetracks, you know, into the pagan religions of the past and to find the origins of the ancient Sumerian and Babylonian religion that included the belief in the immortality of the soul that was extant in Northwestern Europe. Well, Mr. Dart is looking into the origin of Islam, and you're going to find that a lot of these religions have common roots very common roots from that Middle Eastern Babylonian mythology. And a point that he's already making is that the Allah of the Arabs is a cruel God. They believe in a hard life, in a hard land, and a hard, unremittent, unresilient, unforgiving kind of a God. And their theology is that if they can kill you, because you and I are members of the great Satan, right? I've heard preachers who will always lay everything off on Satan. You know, Satan's got plenty you can lay off on him. But a lot of preachers use him as a convenient whipping boy. The devil did this and the devil did that, when in fact the preacher made a bad decision and got himself in financial trouble, and the devil just sitting there smiling, letting him mess up the whole thing the whole time. The devil didn't even have to mess with this preacher because he was so busy trying to mess up his own operation then blame it on the devil. But I've seen that happen time and time again. But these people over there in those nations worship before the throne of a very heartless and a very cruel and a hard God. And it makes them that way. The other night they showed a documentation on TV that was just yuck, so bloody it was turning my stomach. But it was Ashura, and I made the comment that I'd like to help some of those guys uh, at Ashura because that is a particular uh, Shia celebration where they're trying to by portrayal of self-flagellation, reenact, you know, the killing in the plains of Karbala of Hussein and their missing imam. Well, they go down the streets, and I mean it showed that they put these ceremonial robes on them, and here were tens of thousands of them parading up and down the streets in, in uh, every major city in Iran, in Tehran, and I mean the blood was streaming down their heads. It, was, it showed these young boys, I mean, just sickening. And they'd stand there, and this priest would shave a spot in their head, and they'd just take this real sharp knife or flint and just go ping, right to the bone and just cut right there. And the blood start to spurt and run down their head. Then they get this whip, 
or this short piece of chain or these bunch of sticks with thorns in them and walk chanting about their God down the street, beating themselves on the head and wiping blood. Blood is scattered everywhere. They're drenched in blood all of their feet. Makes you want to grab the chain and help them out a little bit. They would love to come over here and butcher every one of us. They would like to butcher everybody that is anywhere this side of the Levant, as it's called, that is not of Islam and who does not believe in Allah. That is their attitude. Almighty God is going to take care of those people in due time. But let me tell you that you and I are being trained to have a part in judgment. In the 16th chapter of the book of Luke is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Now, I've written a complete document on it, which you can study in greater detail, because I'll only have a little bit of time now to complete this within the allotted time to get it on the tape. In verse 19, it talks about the rich man who sumptuously fared. He was rich, clothed in purple. And here was a poor beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, ill, of course, about to die. Wanted just the crumbs. In other words, he liked to lick the garbage can if he could. And the dogs came and licked his sores. It came to pass the beggar died, and it's all defined and explained in very detail with all kinds of other scriptures. It shows what, he, what it meant that he was died as the opposite of, of life, and that he, both he and the rich man died. Was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, does not say heaven. It means into a very close affiliation, association, close proximity to Abraham. Abraham is dead. You prove that back in Hebrews 11, the scriptures where Abraham was laid away, and so on. The rich man also died, we stress that in the article on Lazarus and the rich man, and was buried. Now, they're both dead. It is an allegory. It is a, a metaphor. It is merely a parable. And in Hades, the Greek language is, that's the grave, not hellfire, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue. Now the rich man has been resurrected. He died, went to a place called Hades, which is a cool, dark place of the underworld of the dead, has nothing to do with infernal regions. He is now alive and conscious, seeing and recognizing both Lazarus and Abraham. Obviously, this rich man living during the time of Jesus Christ, if that's when he lived, could not have known Abraham. There weren't any pictures extant of him. Idols were against the law. He couldn't have known who he was. The entire thing is a metaphor. He wants him to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool his tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Why doesn't he want a bottle of CO2? Why doesn't he want a Cardox truck? Why doesn't he want an asbestos suit? Why doesn't he want at least a bucket of water? How about a fire hose? He wants dip the tip of his finger in water and just touch it to his tongue. Why? Have you ever been so scared that you couldn't spit cotton if you tried? Where your tongue almost swelled up and claved to the roof of your mouth? You very rarely get so scared or so nervous that your mouth is so dry you can't even spit, as they say. But some people have been that scared. And this fellow is that scared. He is just about tongue-tied. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. The decision had been made long ago, and this is the entire lesson of this particular metaphor. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that you would send it to my father's house. Maybe I missed out, but maybe I can put in a good word for some of my family. I have five brothers, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if, went, if one went unto them from the dead, acknowledging that Abraham had been dead and was now resurrected, they will repent. And Abraham said a very strange thing in this metaphorical parable. If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, we all know what is going to happen at a time of a great latter-day resurrection that I will now refer to by turning to the 20th chapter of Revelation. I may have to promise to go back through this and start about where I complete this time and to go through it again to really wrap up a lot of things that really need to be covered. 
In Revelation, the 20th chapter, remember that it said in verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. I didn't read the part in 1 Corinthians 15 that says the dead in Christ shall rise first, but each man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. We all know they that are Christ, which includes this dispensation of the church, are to be resurrected at the second coming of Christ. Everybody who has ever lived from the time that Jesus Christ walked the earth, and that includes the patriarchs, the prophets, and the righteous men and women of old, who are detailed in the Bible, some of whom we don't know, some of whom we do know, because Jesus said, You shall see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves cast out. And we know that David is to be the king over all of Israel during the millennium. They will be a part of the dead in Christ. The rest of the dead, the broad majority of everybody who has ever lived and died, live not again until the thousand years are finished. But there is a category of people with whom we have not dealt, because the rest of the dead include all of these people like those who died the other day in a flaming funeral pyre who weren't killed immediately by the collision in that unfortunate airplane crash. They include people that you could love instantly, little Vietnamese, Kampuchean uh, people from China, Japan, and all over the world without belaboring all of the third world nations who have never really had an opportunity for salvation because they've never even heard the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And you could, you could adopt those homeless little waifs and you would love them like your own. You don't hate people because they're Chinese, do you? Or hate them because they're Indian or, or, or anything like that. And I don't hate Iranians. Individual Iranians I've known, played bridge with at the hotel in Zermatt in Switzerland. They're probably some very wonderful Iranian people. But the people who want to come in here with an AK-47 and blow all of you and me to ribbons in a fusillade of bullets, I don't have a whole lot of, of, of tolerance toward right now. I mean, I don't want to just love them in their present state. I want to love them as a child of God who could have their minds completely chained by a miracle from God, which would take a tremendous miracle. But the miracle God's going to utilize is he's got power beyond any power we could imagine. Some people need killing. He's going to kill them and then resurrect them. And there's really no better way to get some people's attention. You can get some people's attention with a two before. Whop, you know, and you've got his attention. Other people, you just make him mad. And you won't get his attention. You can knock him completely out and just make him matter and matter and matter. You could, you could bring him back to consciousness, knock him out again, and you never will get him to like getting hit with that too before and to listen to what you're going to say. But Almighty God is going to kill people and then resurrect them, and they're going to listen. It says here, I saw a great white throne, verse 11, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the biblos were opened, as we have them open today, and another book was opened, which is called the Book of Life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in books according to their works over a period of one of the years that I don't have time to go through now. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. All right? That is the great white throne judgment taking place for approximately 100 years when every human being is going to come before a governed world filled with nations that are governed by spirit beings, of which there are millions, and they're going to have a chance to actually live and work and, and see and talk to and be taught by spirit members of the God family and have a far better opportunity when you stop to think about it. That may include your children and grandchildren. So don't despair. Would you rather be taught by a sweaty human being with all of his foibles and mistakes and his own ego and his own personality and his own vanity and his own inabilities, or would you rather be taught by Jesus Christ incarnate? Would you rather be taught by the Apostle Paul resurrected, sitting there in glorious white? He's not going to make a mistake. You see what I'm saying? I mean, the people that will be having an opportunity for salvation during the course of 100 years in the Great White Throne Judgment are going to have a marvelous opportunity. But there's something having to do with governing and ruling during the millennium with Christ that makes it a better resurrection. Now, verse 14, Death and the grave, Hades, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. It's given to all men to die once. All these people have died. Two categories have been resurrected. One, to eternal life, members of the God family. The other vast majority, 99% of all human beings who have ever lived, maybe more than that, 99 point some odd percent probably, during the great white throne judgment. There is a tiny percentage with which we have not yet dealt. And it includes those who will live during the great white throne judgment and who will not repent. 
How for granted can we take, like for example, I never cease to marvel at the young television age baby. Uh, to me, television was a miracle when I first saw one in a display back in RCA building in New York City. And it was just on display there in 1946. And uh, they weren't commercially available until about that time. And about 47, 48, a few people could get little black and white TVs, a little old tube, you know, picture about that big. And my parents got one, I think, a couple of three years later. And then by the 50s, a few more TV sets and so on. But little children grow up now on the living room floor, and they don't look at that picture and say, well, how did that man get in there the way my generation did? And say, well, how does, that, how does the airwaves actually transmit a picture? And you try to study it and figure it out. Well, they just take it for granted. Now, you know, people are being attuned through all of the literature and the trash music and trash entertainment for creatures from outer space, creatures of other worlds, creatures that are blobs that come out of the toilet. I mean, there are all kinds of science fiction books of every kind. And if you think that a human being is not versatile enough, that children can be born and people who died in that crash, including children, can be resurrected and can see the kingdom of God extant on the earth. And human beings, as well as spirit beings, and cannot become inured, calloused, and just used to it, and can actually still go the wrong way, think again. Because human beings are capable of making the wrong choice face to face with God. And they've done it in the past. Our forebears Israel did it. How could we evaluate human beings who lived for 40 solid years with a whirlwind of black smoke and by night a huge column of fire with rumblings and lightnings and the voice of God that scared them half to death, went running off and said, let Moses talk to us, and rebelled and would actually make an idol and so on when they had the phenomena of miraculous things happening to them, manna raining down out of heaven, their shoes never rotting on their feet for 40 solid years. And actually the priests going in and Moses coming down radiant white from the mountain with the tables of the Ten Commandments. What kind of a witness do people want? People want a miracle today. They want to see something, some evangelist raise somebody from the dead or cause a leg to straighten out in some kind of fakery on the platform. They want to see some man levitate a table or hear a voice from some departed Aunt Martha. They want something to chill them and excite them and give them goosebumps like a magic show. Let me tell you, the human beings during the great white throne judgment, in some cases, and I hope it's only one-tenth of one percent, will become so inured and so accustomed to the members of the God family that some of them are going to make the wrong choice. Now, Second Peter, the third chapter, talks about a time when the elements being on fire shall melt with a fervent heat. The whole world at that time, it says, eventually in the book of Revelation, will not have any more sea. There is no more sea in the new heavens and the new earth, but apparently a sort of a metallic globe that now becomes the headquarters of the family of God to go, who knows, into what part of the universe and to continually perpetuate the plan and the program that God has reaching out into all eternity. There is some trash that must be disposed of. What is that trash? They are that minuscule, and let's hope and pray, and I believe that they are, tiny percentage of human beings who will not repent, both in this age, in ages that have gone by, and in ages yet to come. The point of Lazarus and a rich man is that that second death must be a conscious death. He is going to resurrect the evil as well as the good. And the only provision you find for it is in a resurrection at the very end of the great white throne judgment prior to the time when the elements being on fire shall melt with fervent heat. You read of that in the fourth chapter of the book of Malachi. And I'll conclude with that. And perhaps I need to come back and explain this in greater detail at a later time or perhaps write something on it. Chapter 4, verse 1, Behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. And I believe that that is exactly the same as in Second Peter, the third chapter. And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, saith the Eternal of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And it talks about treading down the ashes of the wicked. 
And there is another little microcosm of that in the fact that Almighty God is going to grab, or Christ is, the beast and the false prophet, and take them screaming and, and yelling to the brink of a precipice by Jerusalem and throw them over the cliff into a place called Gehenna. And there it says their bodies are going to hang halfway up. They're going to die. And people are going to narrowly look on them and say, Is this the man that terrorized the kingdoms? And that's in Isaiah, the 14th chapter, along with Ezekiel, the 28th. The good news, of course, is in all of this that people who have suffered the most horrible death that I can imagine and are no longer with the living human community today that were on that airplane and many others that have died in like fashion are, I think, going to be the first candidates for repentance. I've said and opined that if there is anyone who is going to want to turn to God and avoid the ultimate penalty for sin, which is death by fire, it's someone who has already experienced it. Wouldn't you agree with that? I would imagine those people are all going to repent and eventually be saved. It's a terrible tragedy when someone has to die like that. It's a terrible tragedy when anyone has to die, because the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, according to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. But our God is a loving, a merciful God. He doesn't want to burn or destroy anybody. And fortunately, it appears that he's only going to have to get rid of about less than one-tenth of one percent. I don't believe in any doctrine of universal salvation. I believe it's a choice. But I think when you see the clear choice, life for all eternity, doesn't matter how you part this life, resurrected to live with Jesus Christ for all eternity, no longer the issue in doubt. And that you're told in the Word of God, he that hath the Son has life. You've already got it. You can't lose it. The church can't take it away from you. The devil can't take it away from you. God won't take it away from you. You are in soul control. You already have eternal life. Now, think about babies. My grandson, I'll think of him for a moment and think about his parents. How well can you function as a parent in this life to protect your child from everything that is waiting out there to savage him, pervert him or her, twist him, destroy, pollute, make a criminal of, make a drug addict of, use as a thing by a thug who would take a child and use him for some twisted sex purpose and throw him in a copse of woods. How urgent do parents try to shield and love and protect a child? And how effective are they? Well, pretty effective. But sometimes not perfectly so. Because as perfectly as you can watch them, a slip can be made. And sometimes this rotten, cruel old world can come in and do some things to you you just don't even want to begin to believe. How effective can God Almighty watch over a child? Could you, as a resurrected human being, now in the member of, uh, a member of God's own family, not take a whole lot better care of your child or of your grandchild or of your great-grandchildren than you can your own children in the flesh? Well, of course you can. The greatest bargain in the history of the world is salvation. It's not cheap because Christ paid a great price. But what a bargain it is for us and how thankful we ought to be that we have it.